Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Last Tuesday, we looked at the first half of this chapter on dependent origination and the five clinging aggregates. Um, dependent origination shows that from ignorance of four noble truths through 12 observable causative links, all manner of suffering arises. And this is the key theme of the Buddha's Dhamma, is understanding uh, the nature of dukkha and abandoning our own contributions to our own dukkha. So dukkha... Uh, is any experience of uh, mild disappointment to extreme emotional, mental, and physical pain. Uh, dukkha <clears throat> means any disturbance in the mind. And so that could be a negative disturbance. I don't want what's occurring. But it's also a positive occurrence if it leads to grasping after and clinging to that positive experience. It relates directly to the second noble truth of grasping after and clinging to fabricated views is the essence of dukkha. So the Buddha described dukkha as birth is suffering, or dukkha. Uh, it doesn't mean that the act of giving birth is suffering, although my mom reminded me often that it was. Uh, it means that simply as a consequence of having a human life, there will be suffering. Immediately the Buddha is teaching us the difference between acceptance and approval. We don't need to approve of what's occurring, but we need to accept it. Why? Because Simply because it's occurring. And it's foolish not to. In fact, it, a better word for it would be it's unskillful in relation to the Dhamma to not accept whatever is occurring. That doesn't mean that we have to approve of it. As we develop the Dhamma, we learn the profound difference between approval and, and acceptance. Most human beings have them tied together. In other words, in order for me to accept this, I must approve of it. Uh, and that's just a self-referential view, the, the approval part. Uh, so birth is suffering, uh, sickness is suffering, aging is suffering, death is suffering. The Buddha continues by saying, not getting what is desired is suffering, getting what is undesired is suffering. And he would always conclude his teachings on, or his explanation of dukkha, or description of dukkha, as saying, in short, the five clinging aggregates are dukkha. That means that the five clinging aggregates are the personal experience of suffering. The five clinging aggregates are the result of taking what's occurring personally. The five clinging aggregates are form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and consciousness. Now remember when I'm talking about consciousness, when the Buddha's talking about consciousness, he's talking about ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. He's not referring to some kind of grand unifying consciousness. There is no thing, no such a thing in the, in the Buddhist Dhamma. And so the five clinging aggregates, uh, beginning with form, identifying with form, identifying with just this physical body and saying, this is me and this is all of me, is the beginning of limiting my experience in human life and the beginning of creating stress and suffering for myself. And then from that wrong view, I self-identify with perceptions and I think that my perceptions are me. And that leads to creating fabrications. Fabrications, you could say, are hardened perceptions. Or, or perceptions that we brought into our own reality as me. And finally, it's maintained through consciousness, ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. So let me just read a little bit from that chapter. I'm not going to read 
the whole thing. Um, the Buddha's words on uh, the five clinging aggregates. Form is not self, feelings are not self, perception is not self, mental fabrications are not self, and consciousness are not self. My words, the five elements that combine to give the appearance of a self, the Buddha called the five khandas or the five clinging aggregates. Khanda or skanda, the uh, Pali and uh, Sanskrit words, uh, is typically referring, typically is translated into mean the stump of a tree. And the, the metaphor is important because like a stump of a tree, the, the five clinging aggregates are persistent but useless. In fact, you could say they're even beyond useless it's because they create a constant distraction from us understanding who we are as individual human beings. The five clinging aggregates explain that from ignorance, a deluded view is formed. This ignorant view obscures reality and creates distraction. And it really is the distraction of maintaining these five clinging aggregates that are not self, but maintaining them as me. Again, once we decide that something is me, something is, is that I own it, where we are bound through ignorance to cling to it and maintain it. And that's where all our stress comes. Uh, so this results in the, co- the combining of the five disparate parts to objectify and provide a vehicle for the ensuing confusion and, uh, and suffering. So each of these five clinging aggregates When we, when we develop the Dhamma, they're no longer clinging together. In other words, there is just form when form is present. There is just a perception when perception is present. There is a, a level of fabrication when present, but as we develop jhana, concentration, and the refined mindfulness that holds in mind the Eightfold Path, we're able to recognize the fabrication and simply abandon it. And again, see how that relates directly to what the Buddha awakened to, dependent origination. And so as we're engaged in this process of living within the personal vehicle for suffering, the five clinging aggregates, the the Dhamma and the, the, the Buddha's development of the Dhamma is so brilliant that it allows us to take a mind that is rooted in ignorance and bring it to a mind that is now rooted in wisdom. And how else would a mind do that except with a a, a Dhamma that first develops concentration so we can recognize what we're doing to ourselves, and then the framework to actually abandon it. And think back to just a few weeks ago where we're talking about the virtuous aspects. So how do we know when we're rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths? By being mindful of our speech, our action, and our livelihoods, because that's where it's going to play out, isn't it? it and this, this, this shows how a, a meditation-only practice will only reinforce whatever that is that's causing stress and suffering in our lives, because it has no vehicle for the actual being mindful of it and abandoning it in a very gentle way. That's why the Buddha taught an eightfold path and not a onefold path or a ninefold path. It's very specific. So this understanding is a key concept of the Dhamma. If this is unclear at this point, remember that the eightfold path develops the, the vision and wisdom and understanding to see this reality clearly. From the point of view of an ego personality, this often sounds like nonsense. This is a wrong view. Many people, when they first take to the Dhamma, have to overcome their resistance to feel like this is annihilation, isn't it? When I let go of all views of self, even though those views are fabricated, it feels like the ending of me. But just like the Buddha told Bahia, this is not me. This is not what I am. 
And that is such a key to developing the Dhamma and understanding what arises through dependent origination in this self-identification to form feeling perceptions, fabrications, and uh, an ongoing consciousness. An aspect of ignorance is the ego's personality of uh, personal in, inclination to ignore anything that would challenge its existence. So we create very powerful and subtle strategies within our own minds, but also in this in, in the structure of society to continue to ignore our own ignorance. In fact, you can say that most of the of the common structures of society are rooted in this subtle and powerful strategy for the world to ignore ignorance. And of course, look at the condition of the world. And, you know, the, the when I was growing up, I guess in my late teens and early 20s, you started hearing this idea that we're, we're I think it was the uh, the fifth generation, maybe. We're, we're, we're on the dawning of a new age of Aquarius, meaning where human society is right on the verge of this great awakening where we're all going to live in peace and a utopic society. And of course, we are farther away from that than we've ever been. That, that's, a, that's a myth. Look at the condition of the world. And I'm not saying this, that we should beat ourselves up with the condition of the world, but we should look at, 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 at the entire world and ourselves in relation to the world from right view, from a, a reality view. We're not on the edge of the, the dawning of an age of Aquarius. We're, we're still on the edge of, of, of destroying ourselves on this planet. We're still on the, right on the edge of nuclear war, aren't we? And all the other things. This, this mass pandemic that we can't seem to get a hold of. Again, I'm not trying to, to, to talk about how awful things are, but just to recognize that birth is suffering. As a consequence of having a human life, there's always going to be stress and suffering. Always. Unless we awaken. But that's not the point of the Buddha's Dhamma. The Buddha never saw himself as a savior. He never thought that he was teaching a salvific Dhamma. He taught a Dhamma to teach people reality. How to live in reality as a human being. Free of the inherent stress and suffering that's part of having that human life. That's the brilliance of Siddhartha Gautama. When faced with, with truths that would bring wisdom to the ignorant, that the ego self is dependent it, on for continuance, questions such as what am I and what happens to me when I awaken or when I die arise. Those are the great questions that Pachagoda always asked the Buddha. Where, who are you now, Buddha? Where do you go when you die? And the Buddha would always respond, excuse me, it's your questions, Vachagoda, that confuse you. And it's our questions about these, these grand questions about who I am, where do I come from, where do I go when I die. Those are the questions that men and women have been asking themselves forever. And those are the exact questions that distract us from our human life. And those are the same questions that cause us to, keep, to create fabricated dharmas about what's going to happen to me when I die, rather than focusing on what the Buddha taught and understanding what it means to be alive. That's what always confused me about all the other forms of Buddhism that I was involved in until I found the Buddha's Dhamma. I didn't really understand why I was so frustrated with what I was being taught until I came to the Buddha's Dhamma and realized that all along, all that I really wanted to get out of the Dhamma was to understand who I was in relation to the world. And a fabricated Dharma can never do that because it's always fabricated on what's next, rooted in what happened in the past. It takes the mind out of the body constantly. These are inappropriate questions as they are rooted in ignorance and the ego self. The result of ignorance cannot diminish ignorance. In other words, when the Buddha de described himself as awakening, he said that I, there's nothing left within me that could provoke another moment of ignorance, meaning he had emptied himself of all ignorant views. 
That's the Buddhist teaching on emptiness. It has nothing to do with establishing ourselves in some grand void. The Buddha taught emptiness as a reminder that this is the point of the Dhamma, to empty ourselves of ignorance. And I'm going to leave it there. I think it's a, a good enough explanation of the five clinging agras. And just to always remember that when, when we feel ourselves in a stressful situation, meaning both negative and positive stress, to remind ourselves, I'm stuck in this view of five clinging aggregates. And remind yourself, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. So that's today's talk. Uh, let's go around the room. Uh, I'm going to start with Greg. I'm start on the bottom. Greg, how are you this morning? Hey, I'm very good. There you are. Um, I think I'm going to uh, take noble silence on this one. I'm glad you and Michelle joined us, and the little one, too. It's good to see yeah, you. Yeah, it's good to see you. <laughs> Hi, Mary. Hello, Mary. Maybe she stepped out. Tim, how are you this morning? Hey, John. Thank you for the teaching. I'm a past technical science. I'm glad you joined us. Good morning, Jen. Good morning. Hi, everybody. Um, the dukkha is only the is just movement in the mind. I I've heard that again today, and I've heard you say it a million times. Didn't really understand what it what it meant when you said it all the other times, and this time I I get it um, partially because of a, a teaching that Ron gave on becoming, where he he talked about how. The coming is moving away from what is occurring. And he didn't say this. I'm I'm adding this on. It's sort of you're doing that in your mind. So you're, you're, it's a construct of your mind that you thinking about um, sitting and breathing and just sitting and breathing. Yeah. So when we're in jhana meditation, um, we bring our our breath back to, or our focus, our, our attention back to our breath um, so that we can continue to come back to what is occurring. And when the mind starts to use form to sort of orient and create a little tension and a little perspective in order to observe what is happening or to um, perceive what is happening or to have emotions about what is happening. That is, that's dukkha. So that little bit of sort of and it's the mind. It's a contract of the mind that's doing this. The mind kind of uses yeah. the to to orient to what's occurring. Just to, to think about, oh, I'm sitting and and breathing right now, and just that little bit of movement. That's you know, you're thinking about what's happening rather than just experiencing what's happening. And so it's really getting into that little subtle um, stuff. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool. That's that's the word. Thank you, Jen. You're really explaining the the, the subtle levels of uh, the, the five clinging aggregates and how they affect us. And I think it's 
it, it's really marvelous that, uh, that the teachers are teaching each other too, isn't it? You know? Yeah, Robert. it's good stuff. Yeah, it is. Thank you, Jen. Kevin, how are you? So done. So I, I've referred to this one uh, sutta before, and it, it really applies, I think, here. Um, it comes from, and I'll actually quote the whole thing, or the piece of it. It's not the whole sutta. Because the sutta actually talks about the birth of the Buddha. And to me, it's kind of, it's sort of fantastical. It's sort of, I'd like to hear your commentary on it sometime to see where you think it all fits in. Of course, it all fits in. But this is the very end piece of it, and it's from the Majima Nikaya 123. So you can reference it too. But um, I sort of partially quoted before, but it really applies here because it is the five cleaning aggregate. And um, it's a marvelous and wonderful quality of the Buddha. So here it is, a Buddhist word that says, you, you may, Ananda, also keep in mind this marvelous and wonderful quality of the perfect one. Knowingly, feelings arise in the perfect one. Knowingly, they continue. Knowingly, they cease. Knowingly, arise perceptions in the perfect one. Knowingly, they continue. Knowingly, they cease. Knowingly, arise thoughts in the perfect one. Knowingly, they continue. Knowingly, they cease. This, Ananda, you may also keep in mind as a marvelous and wonderful quality of the perfect one. Yeah. So it just really, you know, underlines what the five clinging aggregates, three of the five clinging aggregates, but they're occurring in this body of the Buddha yeah. and the mind of the Buddha, the consciousness of the Buddha. But he he underlines really how they're impermanent and how yeah. they, they arise and they cease. There, there's nothing in there that is permanent yeah. so it just underlines that <laughs> it just, yeah. i keep coming back to that and i quoted i think last time we spoke but that was the whole thing yeah <laughs> it, 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 thank you kevin that, that is so ap- appropriate um and uh, like i said previously the five clinging aggregates continue in an awakening or three of them and continue in an awakened human being they're just not clung together as and being used for self-identification the Buddha is describing in a very, very profound and direct way the nature of impermanence within the Dhamma. That these things that we think are permanent are actually impermanent and have nothing to do with self. But he's also referring to himself and he's reminding Ananda that his cousin himself, the Buddha, is simply another human being who awakened. And the same, the same um, processes that occur in any human being are occurring within an awakened human being they're just not being used for self-identification. The impermanence of this feeling is recognized. That The fourth foundation of mindfulness relates directly to that. And even the charge that I give or the guidance that I give at the end of meditation, to notice the quality of your mind. Be at peace with your mind. We're at peace with the present quality of my mind, whether it's agitated or um, extremely elated, because I understand the, the impermanence of, of what is occurring, what I'm feeling right now, and what I'm thinking about the feeling, which is really what a perception is. I don't really perceive a feeling about a, a shiny new Ferrari. It's my thought about the shiny new Ferrari that is, is what's affecting me in this moment. So it, again, it's, it's the thoughts about who we are in relation to what's occurring that we recognize as impermanent, that we recognize as not having any of me in it, 
and in that moment I am liberated. And in the next moment I might grasp myself or attach myself to a form, a feeling, a perception, a fabrication, or some aspect of thinking. But as Jen just said, in that moment I take a breath, I unite my mind back in my body, and now I'm living as a Buddha. Now I'm living as a Buddha, in that moment. Perfect jhana meditation, perfect right meditation, in this moment is living like a Buddha. And we've talked often of taking that concentration off of our cushion and applying that to the refined mindfulness that now, rooted in concentration, I'm allowed to apply that refined mindfulness to the entire Eightfold Path and do it what Kevin just described. So thank you, Kevin. Beautiful. Uh, Kevin, could I ask for a second? Yes. Is this the sutta where uh, Anand gives this whole description of all the fantastical uh, abilities and... and, and um, things that the Buddha can do, and, and his mother, I think. And I the think Buddha so, yeah. Goes, uh, yeah, yeah, I, you know, yeah, I, I know I can do this, and yeah, I, and then in the end he goes, but I also have these fantastic Yes, fun. yes, I think yeah. it is. I, it's been a long time since I read it, but uh-huh. it just goes yeah. off on uh-huh. kind of... Yeah, it's wonderful yeah, it, where he it, kind of sits there and says, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, it's fine, yeah. but it, don't remember, don't yeah. forget you know, yeah. I had peace from that scope qualities. Yeah, I like the like the the, uh, the handful of leaves sutta. The Buddha the Buddha said, "I have there, there's other there's other knowledge that I have, but I only teach this because it relates to the Dhamma." So, depending on the translation, you're going to hear a very embellished way of of the birth of the Buddha that that is just rooted in fantasy. Uh, and it's and it's and it's included because later traditions need to have a magical, mystical interpretation of the Buddha's birth to justify what occurred. But of course, the Buddha never claimed any of those kind of things. They're 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 added later, and he always discounted the notion of extraordinary powers or psychic powers because he always described those as simply a distraction getting into the speculative and the mystical aspect as, as just a distraction of what it means to have a human life. Because, of course, human beings don't have those qualities. They simply don't. And so we learn to live in reality as it is. So, Thank you. Okay. Brett, how are you this morning? Uh, good. Good to be here. Nice to see everybody. Uh, thanks for your teaching, John. My pleasure. Um... We were just good to, uh, um, yeah, to not to be able to see the five clinging aggregates as just form, um, and not being attached to them. Um, it's uh, it's just it's just a good reminder to uh, to be aware when these things come up. Um, that you know, not cling to them. I'd be uh, in a better place if I do. So it's uh, yeah. Curious. So thank you. Thank you, Brent. Thanks for joining us this morning. Matthew, how are you this morning? Hey, I'm fine, thank you. Um, yeah, I really enjoy what, what you say. And I, I have a lot of thoughts now and about everything. Because, uh, as you know, I've been Buddhist for many, many years. I, I jumped between two traditions, the Chan first, then the Triratna. And all the time I struggle when I ask questions about the sort of emptiness and the five clinging aggregates, and and then when I wrote it, when I read your book, it's like okay, that's clear. 
because uh, <laughs> it's true because like nobody gave me like a definition about ignorance related to the concept of emptiness all the other tradition just uh, not to be offending and rude with the other but just let me oh read the sutra of heart the sutra of diamond and then like I find it's a completely nonsense when I read yeah. this sutra because uh, it's uh, it's uh, you know the aphorism they just contradict each other. It's just like one sentence and it's completely clear. So I'm really happy. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> then, that's the that's the way to describe that. I'm sorry. Did I interrupt you? Yeah. No, sorry. Sorry. Keep, keep going. Sorry. Yeah. No, I felt I felt the same way. I was very happy when I finally realized what the Buddha taught, that it was something that I could that was useful that I could apply uh to my own life. I you know, I that, that whole idea of emptiness and nothingness, even though I I grasped after it and clung to it because that's what I was being taught, is a teaching on annihilation, isn't it? That there is nothing. And what a what a uh, what a debilitating thought to attach oneself to. When all the all that an awakened human being meant by emptiness is to empty ourselves of ignorance, and and that's a liberating teaching, isn't it? So, thank you, Matthew. I'm glad you could join us today. Thank you. Good morning, Adam. Good morning, John. Good morning, friends. <laughs> um, so this might come out a little bit garbled, but hopefully, I'll uh, hopefully get clear in the end. For, uh, for forever, I've been um, fascinated or obsessed with this idea of um, asking all these questions and sort of like making your own head spin. And a long a book I read a long, long time ago called this. I was part of this sutta or not? Um, they called this section uh, "Questions That Tend Not to Edification." And I love that, that chapter heading because. Um, you know, the, the, the idea that uh, um, assigning value to these, these, um, these questions that, that aren't going to do you any good in the end um, really resonated with me. And even when I, like Mateo, I was studying uh, much later traditions and was really bound up in, in all that stuff, this always stuck with me. And a lot of the time, a lot of the time I was studying that stuff, I kept thinking, well, uh, why? What? <laughs> and um, now that we sort of, you know, it's been put in the context of, of generating dukkha, yeah. asking all these questions, and, uh, you know, um, putting all the value on these things that have no form. Um, uh, this is a, a, a flash of uh, simplicity. Um, and, yeah. uh, uh, you know, that thing that I was, you know, what made sense to me all that long time ago is now kind of come full circle and, and uh, you know, connected with the present moment for me. So thank you very much. This is wonderful. Yeah, thank you, Adam. The, the idea that I should know where I'm going before I know where I am is really ludicrous, isn't it? You know, I used to have a teacher years ago. His name was Arnold Patton. I think he's still alive. And he taught something similar to the Dhamma, but not quite. But he used to say, if you're in New York and you want to get to Chicago, but you believe you're in Los Angeles, you can't get there. So before we can get to where we're going, we have to know where we are. You know, And again, it just makes perfect sense to me anyway, because most of my, or all of my Buddhist practice until I came across what the Buddha actually taught was about what I'm going to become. And it was also based on what I'm going, going to become, clinging to the idea of what I was, meaning what brought me to that 
wherever I was at that moment. And of course, I'm I'm nowhere near living my life at that point, am I? But that's I didn't understand that till I developed Kadama. Good morning, Becky. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, John, for that teaching. Um, You just said, knowing where we are, we have to know where we are before we can get to where we're going. Um, This, when I read, when I read this chapter, I was very, um, I was very happy to understand it and have it make so much sense as I read it because I remembered the first time I read it, I had no idea what it meant or what it was saying. And now I, I understand it. I can... I can I can sort of feel it. I can internalize it. I can I can see how it works within my own mind. Um and once or twice on my cushion I feel like I've been able to get a glimpse of where I am a glimpse of what it means to not be not self, but this is not me, this is not mine, this is not who I am. Then a glimpse of how all of that is hung on who I really am. Yeah. But it's only an instant it's only a moment that that happens and then it's a wonderful moment though isn't it it's back yes but i'm clinging and craving after that moment i'm not gonna lie (laughs) um because it takes such concentration to to be there and it's just um but it, it's something that, that really makes you keep going. It makes you keep going. And, yeah. and there are, it, it makes you calm even when you're not, even when you're yeah. not that concentrated. You can still be calm because you know that whatever's happening now is, is, is impermanent. And you, you learn all of that and it kind of all comes together. And it's just, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Thank you, John. Uh, thank you, Becky. That was wonderful. And uh, let me ask you, how, how did you develop, how did you go from a, um, a great confusion with dependent origination and five clinging aggregates to now understanding how they applied? How did you do it? You know, you know it's really funny because I was, re- I was reading this chapter, finishing up this chapter yesterday, and I was in the same room with my husband reading and I, I finished and I, I looked at him and I said, you know, I just can't believe that I understand this now. <laughs> I said, and I don't know how that happened. You have a great teacher. And he said, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I don't feel like I really like studied it, you know, and learned it and 
and read, you know, but yes. Well, you've been going to class all that time. You listen to all those other people and you think about it. Yep. And that's just how it happened. And it, it is, it is great teachers. It's the whole oh. being a great teacher for me because I'm not really a, a killer studier. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a person who wants an experience with something. Yep. And that's why talking and class works. What you're, what you're describing, thank you for answering the question, as I hoped you would. <laughs> you're describing the importance of the Sangha, aren't you? Yes, you know? yes. That's it, really what did it. Yeah, it really is. Thank of you, course, Becky. Of course, all those conversations with Jen after Sangha, they helped. Well, you've got your own, your own personal teacher as your daughter. You can't, that, that's pretty good. So. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> good morning, Steve. Good morning, John. Good morning, Katarma friends. A uh, couple of things, John. First of all, your book is very incredible. It's <laughs> simple Thank you. to understand. Maybe from second time. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I want to point a couple of things. Uh, first, we all talk about imper uh, impermanence. But it's only one thing I realize is permanent. Is impermanence. Yep. And uh, also our uh, five cleaning aggregates is still impermanent. It's constantly changed. Yeah. Even we fabricate uh, ego personality. Everything is exists according to our thinking, to our mind, which one we create. So if we really understand impermanence, we're able to see past. What kind of path? Eightfold path. When we're able to see eightfold path, it's come back to four noble truths. We <laughs> clearly see four noble truths. Now it's starting to get in my head. Why is Buddha said, I always teach two things, Dukkha and uh, end of Dukkha. Let's see, because every teaching which once he tried to put, uh, 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 the origination, uh, mark of his existence, every tissue he put is go back to follow about truth. Yeah. It's amazing how it's working. Even in meditation, we kind of like try to learn, let us be what is constantly changed. We try to accept this. We try not put uh, Ourselves in the middle, we just it's just let us be with this experience. It's it. It's actually what really break down what means jhana meditation. It's just let be and come back to one things and don't, don't refer, don't fabricate anything else. It's amazing. Thank you, John. Yeah, thank you, Steve. Your your comments show that you're developing the Dhamma as it as intended, and it really. As Becky said at first, it can seem very complicated and, and, and impossible to reach. But as you develop the Dhamma, rather quickly you get to understand how, how simple and direct this is. And then it's just a matter of applying it moment by moment by moment. That's that's refined mindfulness, isn't it? So, Thank you, Steve. David, how are you today? Good to see you, my friend. Good morning, John. Good morning, everyone. Just the word aggregate. It's 
this bundle, this heap. And by themselves, it's just what we are. It's just simply what we are. Because of this very specific ignorance that we've all mentioned, we cling to it and we defend it. It's our ideas, it's our not understanding impermanence. It's the self that we create. And then we get scared when we start understanding it because we might think it's no self, but it's simply not self. And that's that, Mateo mentioned it, the the concept of emptiness. Uh, These aggregates are empty. It takes us to put these values on these mental factors. Yeah. We're not accepting that. Uh, I kind of understand that this body or this bottle standing next to me is impermanent, but I've identified with it. So this practice is to change that reactive thinking to understanding. So then the concept of emptiness isn't this mystical thing that in different traditions are put into place to confuse, but it simply is a a descriptor. It's these things are yeah. empty of anything that is personal. So therefore, to cling to them is what we're carrying around with us. We're defending. So yeah, you know Becky's experience is simply her shedding away that ignorance. And then it's the manifestation of those virtuous factors. When we think or speak or act poorly, it's us clinging to those aggregates. That's what that is. It's telling us. It's not just a slip of the tongue. It's something that is shown with a hindrance. It's ill will. It's envy. It's, you know, doubt about what we're reading. So... Yeah, the more you practice, the more this all kind of fits in. It's yeah. not just these separate classes. It's it's simply what the Buddha awakened to, and uh, I'm grateful of uh, you know this practice because the practice makes me do it every day, and you start seeing it as one thing, not these separate you know teachings. So thank you. Yeah. Wow. Well said, David. You, you remind me of the Loka Sutta where the Buddha teaches. Where there's desire, there's fear, and fear certainly comes up in Dhamma practice. When we still have the desire to maintain a fabricated self, that's whenever fear arises in Dhamma practice, it's because of that. And the Dhamma is the brilliance of the Dhamma is it allows us to gently overcome that by simply doing what you said, by simply and others by continuing with practice. You know, Epsiko, come and see. So, thank you, David. Ram, good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, I'm glad that Jen brought up coming in here because um, in the five clinging aggregate, this is this is where this is the wellspring of, of becoming. This is yeah. this is where it happens, uh, and this is also the place where we finally. Um, let go of our, our becoming. This, 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 
refusal to to be in in the present moment is is not accepting yeah. of of what is. Uh, it all happens through these these five aggregates, uh, and. Uh, It takes a bit of time to 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 see through it because it's it's a mess. Those those aggregates, it's just <laughs> it, it's impenetrable at that time. When you when you first start uh, considering it, you know what what makes up this this thing that that suffering this this so called self. Um, it, it's a mess, and um, and it wants to be a mess. You know that's 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 how it, that's how it lives. <laughs> I love it. it wants to be a mess. That's great. <laughs> yeah, you know, because it's it's its reasons for existence is is all this becoming. You know, I don't want to be here. This this is not good enough. I, yeah. you know, I do not accept this. You know, the gall that we have, you know, day yep. to day, twenty four seven. You know, I do not accept this this reality. Uh, it's just it's hilarious in the end uh, it, how we do that. Um, so we keep practicing. That's all I have. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. <laughs> Excuse me. It, you're pointing out the you know I, the the best description I can give of what awakening means is full human maturity. And so, complaining about what's occurring, what you're describing is childish, isn't it? Yeah. It's the opposite of of being awakened. It, it's it's the opposite of the radical acceptance that Siddhartha Gautama taught us. Uh, it, you know, he taught us this gentle path of liberating ourselves from these five clinging aggregates, this, this personal experience of suffering. And it's certainly can possible. I, can I add on to what... Of course. Because um, just, it just kind of gave me this metaphor that I was thinking, maybe think about it some more, where I, I, it's like your mind grabs... So for... Because when I first started reading this stuff, I didn't understand that, you know, form, feeling, perception, fabrications, consciousness, those things occur. They don't go away when you become awakened. You, they just, well, no, they, I, let's not, let me, let me not say that. As, as your practice deepens, they don't go away. You just don't identify with them. They, you don't cling to them. So clinging to form is is the problem and it's kind of like your mind grabs on to sensations in the body and 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 uses them to re, you know get into that feedback loop and refeed you know the feelings and the, and the sensations back to itself and i sort of picture it as um probably because I just adopted or I'm just fostering a cattle dog. I kind of picture it as like the mind is like the cowboy and the cowboy can sort of let the stampede go by or he can just start lassoing cows and fighting, <laughs> getting dragged and, you know, just, or just kind of letting it, letting it go by. Same thing with a cattle dog, you know, can just kind of let them run and run beside them maybe. But, you know, start getting in there and nipping them and getting, you know, hit in the face and kicked and, you know, whatever. So it's kind of like that metaphor of just kind of letting what's happening happen and not like lassoing it. 
Wonderful, Jen. Thank you so much for that metaphor. Um, so next Tuesday's class will be on the uh, the three marks of existence. Uh, we'll finish today's class with metta, as we always do. These are the Buddha's words on metta. So find your relaxed meditative posture. Gently close your eyes, gently close your mouth, and take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath. John, did you miss Karen? No, no. We got to... Hey, Karen. I'm glad you joined us today. Thank you all for everything. No, I didn't have anything to share, but just gratitude. Thank you. Thanks for joining. The Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. Unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Peace. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.